Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We'll be reading from Acts 20 today. Please follow along. This is God's Word and it's eternally true. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taking his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were, in, were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and, and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Metilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he set sail to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, 
will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed that you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Dads, did we survive the weekend? I heard from Jenna last night that the retreat was good. I'm happy for that. This is a special day for me personally. I have a longtime friend from my music school days in England visiting me. Arrived last night at 10.30. His name is Thomas. He's back here. Wave your hand, Thomas. That's Thomas. You can talk to him afterwards. Thomas and I haven't seen each other in 18 years. And we, we played in a string quartet together. We drove across France and camped in the back of his 1969 Saab Coupe, I think it was a 69, Um, one summer, that was the summer I met Jenna, and then came here. So he was one of the last people in Europe that I saw, And and he's here to stay with me and Jenna for a few days with his daughter Betty, welcome Betty, and Thomas, it's great to have you. If you want to know juicy stories about my embarrassing past, you can go talk to... (laughs) To Thomas, I'm sure he knows it all. Well, we're returning this week, now that Holy Week is behind us, to our study of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is the sequel to Luke's Gospel. And what we have said about this is that it is the continuing, ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the story that this tells. The continuing, ongoing ministry of the now ascended Lord Jesus Christ who is continuing to work in power in this world by his spirit through his church. And we've come to Acts chapter 20, which concludes the third section of Luke's account of these acts. And that, is, that third section began in chapter 13, and it talks about the outward advance of the gospel message into the Gentile territories through the ministry of the apostle Paul. There's a map of this uh, third journey that is concluded here. Uh, This began in Syrian Antioch, there to the north of Palestine. And Paul traveled by land across what is now Turkey, then called 
Asia to Ephesus. And the last chapter 19 was talked about his time, his several years of powerful ministry there in Ephesus. And then the rest of the squiggly line that follows is mostly covered in this chapter, chapter 20. And this is a chapter about goodbyes and last words. This is a sort of a farewell tour of the Apostle Paul as he goes back and visits the churches after leaving Ephesus that he had previously planted and tries to bolster them up, prepare them for his departure. They will not see him again. Last words are often very noteworthy, significant things. People take a record and keep a record online of famous people's last words. They often reveal something or seem to reveal interesting and things about someone's character, about what's important to them, what's on their mind as they die is significant to us. There's been some last words in the news this week. I don't know if you followed the execution of the, of the convicted murderer in, by the state of Florida. His name was Louis Bernard Gaskin, and he was executed by lethal injection. And as is customary, he was uh, offered a chance of saying what was on his mind. Do you have any final words to say? Anybody remember, do you read what he said? I don't know what to make of it. It is fascinating, though. Here's what he said. Justice is not about the crime. It is not about the criminal. It is about the law. Whatever you make of that, that's, that is amazing. <laughs> that's what he had to say. Winston Churchill, this is for you, Thomas. Anybody know uh, Winston Churchill's last dying words? I am so bored of it all. Isn't that interesting? My favorite uh, last dying words uh, are from Hugh Latimer, an English Protestant bishop of Worcester, as he was burned to the stake for his Protestant views by the papists in Oxford, alongside his companion Ridley. And here's what he says shortly before dying. He turns to his friend and he says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Isn't that amazing? Reveals something about his faith and outlook. In this chapter, we have some amazing last words recorded for us by the Apostle Paul. Not the last words he ever said. This is not his dying moment. Uh, but it's not even the last words that he has to say to the Ephesians. He's going to write them a lengthy, amazing, beautiful letter that we have in Scripture, the letter to the Ephesians, sometime later. But these are the last words he has to say, particularly to the elders of that church, uh, in person, face to face. And he, it's clear that it's significant to him, and they are heavy on his mind. Before we get to that, because that's the second half of the chapter, let's just try to understand what's going on in the lead up here. Paul begins, or Luke begins his account by telling us Paul leaves and departs Ephesus after uh, some commotion dies down. He talks about, in verse 1, that Paul departed from them and set sail. Uh, sorry, that was chapter 21. Here's, after the uproar had ceased. So he's referring back to chapter 19 with this riot in Ephesus against the Apostle Paul that was organized by the idol-making craftsmen of the town. Paul's message and ministry was so impactful there in Ephesus that it started to change and challenge the economy 
of the city because people stopped buying idols, and the idol makers staged a very dangerous, loud public protest against the Apostle Paul and his teaching there. And so after that had ceased, Paul then sent for the disciples, verse 1, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. So why did he go to Macedonia? This is a place he had been before. He wasn't going this time on a new evangelistic endeavor. He was going back to, as a farewell tour of these churches that he had served there and planted there uh, as he planted the seeds of the gospel in that part of the world. These are churches called the, the Church of the Philippians in Philippi, the Bereans, the Thessalonians and such. And so Paul goes there to try to shore them up, give them his last words and parting words to try to leave them with, he says, after much exhortation, <laughs> he has a lot to say, and he's trying to leave them uh, built up in their faith so that they can weather the days to come. It looks like Paul in these verses is darting around here and there and, you know, rapidly, but actually Luke's just summarizing. He's got a lot of story to tell. And he's just giving a quick summary of what's going on. This actually, just his time in Macedonia alone, which it says he, after much exhortation, that's a year and a half of time. So he's actually investing significant amounts of time in these churches, trying to bolster their faith and leave them in a good place. Why did he go, though? He went for another reason, not only to try to shore them up, but we know from Paul's letters that there was something else on his mind as he's going. He's going to make final arrangements for a, a relief, of, uh, like an aid relief collection that he's organized and taking up for, to assist the people back in Judea, the poor, struggling Christians in the church in J Jerusalem. When he was last in, well, not last in Jerusalem, but one time earlier in Acts, Paul was in Jerusalem talking with Peter and trying to, trying to explain who he was and what his teaching was to the Apostle Peter and what he was all about and how he had, was called by the Lord to go to the Gentiles. Well, Peter hears all this and he says, I give you the right hand of fellowship. Only this one thing, Paul, remember the poor. And we understand from that that Peter is saying, remember us poor here, Jews that are struggling to make it here and have lost so, uh, we have, we've lost and suffered much for the Lord. Remember us. And so Paul says, this is something I very much wanted to do. And he's spent years organizing collections, instructing the churches to set aside funds, and he's going to come and collect these things, and he's going to deliver them himself personally to Jerusalem. But he's not alone. And we read here in verse 4 of a number of people who join him. These are delegates from the churches that Paul is joined with. Whenever our deacons take up the offering and they go and count the money, they don't do it alone. They do it in pairs. Money is something that needs accountability. It's also dangerous to carry large sums of money on board ships across the country. And so Paul is joined by these delegates from the churches who are going to deliver this relief um, collection to the saints in Jerusalem. So that's the second thing that he's doing and helps explain some of the context here. This party of delegates has agreed by arrangement to, to meet up in Greece, probably in the city of Corinth, where Paul has spent three months up to this point, it says here, and he's been writing his letter to the Romans. So just so you know what's going on in his life, we've, we got done studying the book of Romans, um, I guess, about a year ago. 
And so Paul has written that letter. He's meeting up with these delegates, and they're going to go together on a trip to Jerusalem. It gets off to a rough start, though. In verse 3, Paul learns of an assassination plot against him by the Jews. And he doesn't, the rest of them get on board ship, but he doesn't join them. He walks up to Macedonia to catch a ship up there. He spends a week in Philippi, and we learn from a subtle change of pronouns here that he was joined again by the narrator of this book, Luke. In verse 6, I believe, we start to see this word, this pronoun, we, again. And that's Luke's little signature written in that tells us where he was when he was with Paul. And so Paul and Luke are reunited. They, they get on a ship there in Philippi, and they sail to Troas, where the delegates uh, from the churches have, are, are waiting for them. They meet up there. This is, Troas is a place across the Aegean Sea from Macedonia. And they, the, there's a church planted there that Paul began on his second missionary journey. And here he imparts his last words to the church of Troas. We don't know what his words were, but we know that he had a lot of them. Because even on the very last day of his time there, he's meeting and he's prolonging his, his words, his talking to them to midnight. And he even goes to the wee hours of the, of the dawn. So Paul has a lot on his heart to convey to them. Paul is not wearying them, though. The Apostle Paul has enough empathy and love and heart for people that he doesn't have any need to stand up and hear himself talk. He has powerful, important words to impart to them before he leaves, and we can understand that they are hanging on every word. This is, they understand this is their last time to see this man, as far as they know, and they're hanging on every word. One man, though, is not hanging with them. He's tired. This young boy, Eutychus, is, sits, is sitting in a window, listening to Paul late in the evening at midnight, and he's growing drowsy, and he falls from the window, three stories to his death. Luke says he was picked up dead. Luke's a physician, and so he would know. And so Paul rushes down to Eutychus and falls on him, not pile drives kind of falls, but probably like in the spirit of Elisha. Remember the prophet Elisha who revived a young boy in the Old Testament from the dead by laying on top of him, mouth to mouth, arm to arm, probably something like that. Certainly he embraces him, he touches him. John Calvin in his comments says that this was done because he wanted to um, be moved, move himself to a more earnest spirit of prayer. This is something we do when we are really wanting to connect with somebody in a spirit of earnest prayer for their needs. We touch them, we lay our hands on their shoulder or something. Paul grabs this body and earnestly prays to God that he would be healed and raised. And he was. Paul announces, his life is in him. Be comforted. Isn't that incredible? Wouldn't that make for a memorable last night with the Apostle Paul? They all go up together back to the upper room. They celebrate the Lord's Supper together. With, uh, quite, I'm sure with all the much more poignancy and power. Never before, and Paul continues to teach them and to talk to them until dawn, at which point he leaves. Very amazing. The next verses sort of move the action down, down the coast of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, 
to the city of Miletus. They take a little sort of day, day cruise venture, stopping for the night along the way until they get to the city of Miletus. This is 20 miles to the south or just past Ephesus. <clears throat> Paul, it says, doesn't want to go to Ephesus. And I think because he doesn't want to get sucked in there. He spent three years there. He knows a lot of people. He's, re, you know, not long ago he left from there. And he doesn't have time to get sucked back in to all of those lives and all of that work. So he intentionally passes by Ephesus, doesn't put in there. But the elders, the shepherds of this community, of this, this church, are very much on his heart and mind. And he wants to make sure that he leaves them with a final charge. And so he does. And what a charge it is. This is one of the great speeches of the Bible. It's right up there with Moses' parting words to the, to the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy before they cross over to the promised land. King David's parting words to the kingdom as he hands over the kingdom to his son Solomon. But this is also unique and really stands on its own. Not only in Paul's, the speeches we have recorded of Paul in the Bible, this is unique for him. Mostly he's preaching to non-believers. Here we have a lengthy speech to not just the church, but to the pastors of the church. His parting words to them. It's very unique and important. It was to the elders, but most commentators believe that this is to the shepherds in particular that, that he has in mind. That he's called men who he had raised up, trained for ministry, and he calls them to himself and he wants to give them this charge. This is goodbye, apostolic style. Intensely real, deadly serious, and full of heart. This shows that the Apostle Paul was the genuine article. And he uses his example here, not because he needs to, he needs their approval, not because he's trying to cultivate around him a bunch, of, like a, a, a bunch of fanboys and sycophants. But he puts his, he, you know, the Apostle Paul is usually quite averse to drawing attention to himself. He boasts occasionally in his letters, but it's clear that it, it, it grosses him out. And he's totally embarrassed about having to do it. And he does it only because he's mo he has to protect people by showing his cred. But here he seems unapologetically to say, look at me, remember me, remember what I've done, remember what I've said, remember how I've done it. Why does he do that? Is it because he needs their applause as he leaves? Yeah, you're right, Paul, we really do appreciate you. You've done a great... Does he need to hear those words? No. He needs them to understand he's leaving and it's on them and what that means. Let's look at it together. There's four sections to this speech. Paul tells us in the first section what he has done. In the second section, where he's going. In the third section, what's going to happen to them after he leaves, what they're going to face. And in the last section, he commends them to God with some final um, reminders of his example to them. In the first section, Paul reminds these under-shepherds with him what he has done, his manner of life while he was with them, and the things that he said. He starts 
with the example of his life and conduct before moving on to a reminder of the words that he said. He, he starts first by reminding them of his aim. What was he doing while he was there? He says in verse 19, I was there among you serving the Lord. Paul was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't a servant of men, first and foremost. He wasn't a servant of his own ambitions. He wasn't a self-sender. He was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he starts his letters, he says, Paul, an apostle, maybe, but then he almost always adds, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? His ambition was to do his master's will. That was what he was there to do. That was his focus. And he reminds them that that was his focus. That was his ambition. That was his view of himself. He talks about his manner of life and his conduct as he was there. He talks of his humility. That's, that's a bold thing to do. <laughs> Bring up your humility before people. But he's reminding them, you saw me. You know I'm not about myself. You know, you know I'm not about my ego. You know my humility. You've tasted of it. He reminds them of his tears, his heart, his tenderness for people. His real love reminds them of his perseverance through many trials and plots that were formed against him by the Jews. Talks about his courage and how his trials did not make him shirk his responsibility or shrink away from it. He wasn't intimidated or put off by these plots or threats against him. It didn't keep him from saying, as he puts it, anything that was profitable. His criteria for what he should say was not what was popular, but what was profitable. There's a difference, isn't there? He talks about his constancy. He spoke these profitable things, not only generally in the pulpit, where people will put up with you much more easily. He also said them house to house, face to face, individually, with application to you. He was the genuine article. He was the same man in the pulpit as he was in person. And he reminds them of this and the courage that it takes to do that and, this, and the inner integrity and unity of personhood that it requires to pull that off. And again, he doesn't point these things out to boast or to get solicit pats on the back for himself. He is passing the torch on to these men. And he's, he's wanting to impress upon them that this is the kind of genuine, humble, persevering leadership that God blesses and uses that does this work that, that has been done among you. This is what pastoral leadership looks like, feels like, sounds like. And now it's for you to do. I've been doing this for you. And now it's, for your, it's, it's your turn. He moves on from his conduct to his message in verse 21. I think verse 21, let me see. Well, back in verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, to everybody, of repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul was a plain speaking man and he had a plain, simple message. Repentance, turning away from sin, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. That was his focus. That was his ambition. I, I, I knew nothing among you other than Jesus and him crucified. <laughs> that, was, that was his message. And he reminds them that that was his message because it's tempting to get off into controversial things, little side issues, and to make that the focus of a ministry. It's very tempting to do because there's a certain kind of people that likes to listen to that. But Paul says, remember my message. This is my teaching. And it's not a boring message. It can be talked on hour after hour, day after day, year after year, because there's just a lot of sin to be turned from. And there's a lot of Christ to turn to. And so it lends itself to a life of learning, a life of repentance, a life of growth. And that's what the Apostle Paul gave himself to. That was his message. He wants them to remember that because that needs to be their message. In the second section, Paul tells them that he's where he's going and announces that he's not coming back. Bound by the Spirit, he says in verse 22, following the Spirit's clear direction and leading in my life, I am on my way to Jerusalem. For his practical purpose, we know in going to Jerusalem at this time, was to deliver this money. But... He also knows because the Spirit has revealed it to him city after city through prophetic utterances and other revelations that there's a lot of trouble awaiting him and he doesn't know the outcome. As far as he knows, he might be going to Jerusalem to die. That's all what the buzz he's hearing might add up to and he just doesn't know. Why would he go? He says in verse 24, his life, it doesn't amount much to him. And it's not because he has low self-esteem. It's that he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's his man. I'm already dead, is his understanding. <laughs> I'm a dead man. I've died in Christ. And I've been raised to newness of life, to, to live in him and for him. That's my ambition. And he's sending me there. So I don't account my life as anything valuable, except that I want to finish well. I want to do the job. I want to go where he sends me, and I want to fulfill his mission for my life. Whatever it costs me, and I know that it sounds like it's going to cost me something. But he has that kind of faith. This is... I didn't have time. I, in the first service, I, something came to mind. It's this vague memory. I know it's in my email. And Jeff Moore uh, said he sent it to me, and I haven't had time to look where the origin of this quote is. But there's some quote about the military where soldiers who are brave on the battlefield, David, maybe you know about this, soldiers who are brave on the battlefield are brave because they accept the fact that they're already dead before they parachute in, before they get off the boat. I'm already dead. I accept that now. I can run towards the bullets. And that's the outlook of the Apostle Paul. And he wants them to have the same outlook and view of their own life and its value. Very valuable to be spent for Jesus Christ. In the third section, starting in verse 28, Paul gives the Ephesian elders a, 
Oh, sorry. A couple other things about the second section. He proceeds to announce to them that this is the last time they're going to see him. And that turns out to be the thing that most grieves them. This is when it hits home in the pit of their stomach. So this is it. It really is on us. And then he rises up like a witness on the witness stand. In verse, what is that? Somebody help me out. Where are we? Thank you. Verse 26. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So he's hearkening back to a a sermon in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel. The watchman sermon of Ezekiel the prophet. And in that sermon, Ezekiel talks about how the reason why, why, we, why we set watchmen on city walls. It's their job to sound the alarm if they see danger coming. And a watchman who faithfully sounds the alarm when they see the danger is innocent of the blood because he's done his job. The blood, whatever happens, whatever blood gets spilt because of the outcome of the danger that's approaching, he is not accountable for it because he's done his job. The watchman who doesn't do his job who shirks his responsibility, who falls asleep, or for whatever reason fails to sound the alarm in an appropriate manner at the appropriate time, is held responsible and guilty, incurs the blood guilt of anything that happens in the city as a result. And Paul is hearkening to that idea, and he's saying, I've been a faithful watchman. I've been a faithful watchman. And because of that, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Again, why is he saying this? He's saying this because he wants them to feel the weight of that responsibility. In the third section, verse 28, Paul gives the Ephesian elders a parting charge in light of what he knows is going to happen with them after he leaves. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Interesting that he starts with for yourselves. Richard Baxter another English Protestant, I think probably 1600s era. He was a pastor, I don't remember where in England, but he uh, wrote a book about this speech to the other nonconformist pastors in England where he's trying to impress upon them their duty from, that Paul lays out for them. And he's, one of the places he starts with, I'll never forget reading this, it's on the, some of the first pages of the book. He says, believe it, brothers, he's speaking to pastors, believe it, God never saved any man for being a preacher. Nor because he was an able or good preacher. But only because he is a justified, sanctified man. And subsequently faithful to his master's work. Be on guard for yourselves. Watch out for yourself. Make sure that you are serving the Lord and not your ambition. Make sure that you're converted truly to the Lord, loving him and following him. And then for all the flock, among whom, that's an interesting word, not over whom, but among whom, again, just an indication of Paul's view of himself and the view of the ministry. It is 
is not meant to be lorded over people. We come alongside people as their servants and a part of the body. Even the apostles do that. Isn't that amazing? Among whom you have been set as shepherds to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He's laying it on thick, isn't he? Reminding them the value of the sheep, the preciousness to the Lord, their accountability to God for his sheep and their duty, heightening their duty, sense of duty to protect them. Shepherds have many important responsibilities to care for their flock. One of which is to make sure they have good food, stay away from bad food, to watch their diet and their health. But another one is to protect them from wolves and predators and thieves. And he, that's what he's impressing upon him, him now. He's saying, I, I know that I, I have been, I've been protecting the flock. And so the, there's been a main, I've been maintaining the peace. But I know that after I depart, wolves are going to come in. And they're not going to spare the flock. How, what are the wolves that he's talking about? He's talking about the wolves of false teachers. Deceivers. And they're, he, and they're not going to spare the flock. Souls are at stake, and they're going to follow along with this false truth, this false gospel, this false teaching, and they're going to be led astray to the damnation of their souls. That's what he's saying. I know that that's going to happen. It's going to come. And here's the real gut check. And from your own selves, men are going to arise. And they're going to lead people astray after themselves. John Calvin talks about, in his commentary, several times where this comes from. When Paul says it will arise from within the church, from among your own selves, false teachers are going to rise up and speak perverse things. Where does that, from what well does that spring in our hearts in the church? Ambition. He uses that word over and over again, negatively, ambition. Now, you can use it positively. Paul even uses it positively. But Paul's ambition was a very different thing than the ambition of a false teacher. A false teacher's ambition is to get something for himself, to draw disciples after himself. Calvin calls ambition the mother of all heresies. And he even goes so far as to say it is hardly possible that ambition will not adulterate the purity of the gospel. What are your motives? What are my motives? What are we trying to do here? It matters much. Our souls and other souls are at stake. From among our own selves, men can arise, speaking perverse things. Would you know if they did? Do you have a nose for it? Watch out for ambitious men. Be on the alert, says Paul in verse 31, and remember, remember how I, what it looked like when I went about protecting the church from false teaching and from these wolves. Here's what it looked like. My tireless example of unceasing and tearful admonishment. <laughs> I went around to everybody admonishing them, and that's how I have worked and served the church to protect the flock. Now you've got to do that work. You've been largely benefiting from me doing it. I know you men have helped. But I have been out in front 
bearing the brunt of this work, and now it's for you to do. That's what he's in trying to press upon them. In section four, Paul signs off, finishes the speech, by commending them to God and to the word of God with a final reminder of his example and his ambition, such as it was, to help the weak. That was his ambition, and he wants it to be theirs, to help the weak. At this point in my preparation, as I was just thinking through this final words of Paul, I was feeling really pretty hopeless. <laughs> and I suspect they were too. This is a pretty intense, serious, and heavy charge. A lot of intensity. And Paul's example, they know, is tremendous. And I've been, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, there is no chance I can measure up to this. I'd like to just resign, actually, <laughs> after reading that message. Make this somebody else's problem. <laughs> and so he does a very helpful and important thing. Helpful to me, helpful to them. He commends them to God and to the word of God, which he says is able to build them up and give them an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Oh, that's got to be, that is my hope that God would sanctify me himself through his word and make me able to be a shepherd like Paul. Paul is saying, look to God, men, trust him, feed on his word. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to equip you in everything to do his will. Don't be ambitious. Don't be greedy. Talks about covetousness, how he hadn't, he's not coveted anybody's stuff or gold or silver clothes. Don't be ambitious. Don't be greedy. Give yourself, as I have done, to modest hard work and aim low. Have this ambition. Aim low. <laughs> aim low. Keep the cookies on a low shelf. Prioritize the weak. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Verse 35. Don't have stars in your eyes, men. Love the sheep. Associate with the lowly. Give, give, and give some more to them. Don't look for things for yourself. Don't look for your reward here. Hope for your reward in heaven and a job well done commendation from Jesus. And remember his words, verse 35, that it, he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's how he signs off. That is an amazing speech. And how did the people, how did these men respond to Paul's word to them? Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. What a poignant goodbye. I want to end with just one point of application question for us to consider today. I know this speech is given to pastors 
And I've certainly felt uncomfortable this week thinking about it. But here's one question that all of us can consider and profit from. Wouldn't it be nice if God called us to move on from here? If people cried? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, it's not nice to leave and it's not nice to make people sad. But wouldn't it be nice for people to love you like that? They adored the Apostle Paul. They wept aloud at, the, the, at hearing that he would, they wouldn't see his face again. And they kissed him. They, lo- they adored him. Wouldn't it be nice to be adored like that? I mean, really. What's the recipe? Paul's a pastor and a minister and apostle. He's speaking to shepherds, and they have their special duty and obligation and responsibility. But if you boil it down, there's a lot in here for each of us to follow and examine our lives by. Lovers, and the Apostle Paul was a lover. Lovers are loved. Not by everybody. Even lovers can be rejected for their love, for their speaking the truth in love. They can be rejected, but lovers are loved. If you, we know, we often are asked for recommendations for churches here or there, and People seek counsel from us as they're considering moving to another town. Do you know any churches there? And as we process that with them, whether they're in our church or not in our church, we usually say the same kind of, one of our talking points is this. Okay, you're going to go there. After we get done saying, don't judge that church. Love it. Be a part of it. Give yourself to it. Here's what we say. We say, give yourself in such a way, such a loving way, such a selfless way that people will cry when you leave. Are we giving ourselves, brothers and sisters, in true love to the work of this church, to one another in this church? Just because we're busy, we might be doing a lot, doesn't mean we're doing it in love. We could be doing it for ourselves. We could be doing it for recognition and applause. Paul didn't do anything for recognition and applause. The wounds on his body prove it. He did things for love. He was willing to say hard things for love. He was willing to suffer rejection for love. And he was loved, adored by those who received him. And there's something in that for all of us to have as a goal. And, as a, as a, and a, his, his whole life and way of being is something of a model for us. To pattern our life and our love after. Are we giving ourselves to one another and to the work and the service of the Lord here? In that way... I hope so. I want to.
I hope you want to. And I hope we all will. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this message from your word today, that you would change us by it, that you would work true, sincere, selfless love into our hearts for one another, for you, that we would not be filled with selfish ambition, but you would purify us and remove that far from us, that we would be humble, tearful, compassionate in our service to you and to one another. And I pray, Lord, that you would do great things that glorify your name through our humble service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.